Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week was Wendy Schultz. Wendy is a futurist, somebody who studies changes over time. She works with Jigsaw Foresight, the group that recently published the Law in the Emerging Biowage Report, which is all about how and if law legal systems uh, can be used to tackle the impending crises. And it was written for the legal profession to make them more aware of some of the challenges that they might face and how to overcome them in the future. I invited Wendy onto the show to discuss that report, but of course we discussed many other things as well. We discussed the financial sector, how it is driving the crisis and how it can be bridled. Uh, to support a just transition. And that conversation really engaged with the old maxim, you can't take down the master's house with the master's tools, which was absolutely fascinating. We discuss the climate crisis as a classic wicked problem that has multiple prongs, multiple levers and needs an ecosystem of changes, as Wendy puts it, to respond to it. We discuss government's relationship with futurists and with information, the role of activism in the ecosystem of changes and the crucial necessity of taking better care of ourselves and of the living systems that we depend on to survive. And how if we can adjust those relationships, perhaps we can even thrive. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Rachel, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this. It's an interesting topic and one of my favorites. Before we jump into it, can you, you are a futurist. You're the director for Infinite Futures. Can you explain what a futurist is? I think this is a term a lot of us will not have come across before. Very true. Or if you do come across it in especially British media, it is most often um, the, the sort of misused term futurologist. So a futurist, right. a futurist is essentially someone who spends a lot of time looking at change over time, patterns of change over time, and the cascades of impacts and implications that particular changes create, because no change goes without some sort of consequence. Those can be great, they can be awful. And so part of the issue of future studies is not only the more social science aspect of it in tracking change and data about change, so trends, emerging changes, what is the new, what is the novel, um, and thinking about those on the basis of patterns of change in the past from history, but also engaging a lot of people in this conversation in saying, what is it that we, especially we as humans are doing in the world? And have we really thought through all of the impacts for better, or for worse? Have we thought through not only who is going to be empowered and reap the benefits, but who is going to be disempowered or marginalized or pay the cost? So it's a way of critical mm. thinking about change over time. And the one thing that I must truly emphasize is futurists do not predict because it isn't possible to predict. Living systems are complex and adaptive in the face of often turbulent change. And so the direction of history can go practically anywhere. So a key idea in future studies is that we explore alternative possible futures. We explore what different outcomes of change might be. So you can think of it as contingency planning in a way. That's kind of a group exercise. <laughs> but Right, okay. How, how would it differ to systems? Was that what you expected? What did you think a futurist does? Ooh, what did I think a futurist does? Uh, maybe, maybe somewhere in the fun predictions <laughs> field. 
maybe looking at looking at trends over time and trying to establish what may or may not happen and then what should be done. Um, something like that. Out of interest, how often are futurists um, invited to speak to political leaders to establish um, how things are changing and how they might change over time? Actually, quite often. Um, the the, well, the difficulty good. is not so much being invited to talk to political leaders or um, policymakers. The difficulty is getting them to act on what you're saying. Mm. So... Very often they say, wow, that's interesting. That's fascinating. Yes, we should be thinking ahead about that. Some, someone in the government is doing that, right? Uh, so one of, the, one of the areas that we are always trying to improve in future studies is that point of engagement of how to make these possibilities for the future really come alive in people's minds with a sense of vividness and urgency. And one of the more interesting tax that the field as a whole has taken is towards what are often called experiential futures or design futures, um, speculative design, speculative fiction. And an example at a government level uh, where that has really been absolutely physically instantiated is the government of Dubai has had for the past 10 or 15 or more years uh, a foresight and futures ad advisory function, and they have frequently sponsored a, an annual conference on futures of governance. And as part of the mounting momentum of that conversation in Dubai, they actually built a very striking museum of the future. Oh. And just recently, within the past few weeks, held a global conference in futures that the government was hosting. So the government of Singapore has built in sort of futures research unit. The government of Canada has Policy Horizons Canada. The government of Finland has a futures advisor to the prime minister and to parliament. So there are a lot of governments that actually have in-house futures and foresight units. And in addition, yes, notable and leading futures researchers are often invited to speak in um, to parliaments, to uh, leaders. The person with whom I uh, did my PhD research, Dr. Jim Dater at the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, um, was regularly invited in to talk to heads of state, as were other senior leaders in the World Future Studies Federation. And one of his last visits here to the UK, he was actually in talking to Parliament in the UK and um, actually engaging them in a bit of a futures thinking exercise about alternative futures. So it happens, but it's hard to change. It's difficult to make changes in human systems. There's a lot of energy, time, infrastructure invested in the systems mm -hmm. of the current day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that investment is deeply anchored in the past and traditions of the past. And so essentially there's a lot of inertia and momentum towards a certain path in all of human society, in, in, in our communities, in our nations, in our government systems. It's very difficult to derail that, as you know. So that is one of the, the big challenges. And we're running out of time, as you also know. Well, yeah, all right. So what is your opinion then, just out of interest, um, what is your opinion on the activism that is, has sort of been going on for the past few years and has really kicked up um, its notch over the past few weeks in particular? Uh, just Stop Oil, this campaign that is seeing people all over the world now um, engage in uh, nonviolent uh, civil disobedience and is getting a lot of attention. Um, an easy critique, I think, of activists is that, oh, well, you know, it's a very simple message and it doesn't take into account um, the complexity of the system and what it would take to undo or to transform the system. But in your understanding of how systems do change, what is their role? Uh, how important is their role in... Um, creating dialogue or in raising the alarm, for example? I think it's absolutely critical. 
I think it's bringing home the, I'm looking for the word, the artificiality of some of what people take for granted as priorities. So what I thought was interesting about the recent uh, activist engagements with art and, say, tomato okay. soup is, as any number of people were pointing out, yes, you know, sunflowers is an amazing piece of art. Sunflowers is also behind glass, so. Yeah. Um, but is it as amazing and as important as the entire living biosphere? No, it isn't. So the people who were getting, uh, uh, indulging in outrage over the fact that activists threw tomato soup at sunflowers really were misplacing their outrage. We're, we're acting, um, expressing a considerable lack of critical thought about priorities, quite frankly. I, and part of that, uh, it would be inevitable that I would say that because literally one of the first research projects that I worked on were doing a graduate degree in future studies at the University of Hawaii, where the program is embedded in, in policy and political science, was working with the American Trust Territories of the Pacific Islands, in particular the Republic of the Marshall Islands, on global climate change, sea level rise, and what they could do about it. And that yeah. work was in the late 80s. Yeah. So this, these conversations, these warnings have been in place for over 40 years. People have been yeah. trying to get the attention of not just world leaders, but of, you know, their neighbors, the people in their community for over 40 years to say, this is critical, this is important, we all have to do things differently moving forward into the future if we're going to expect to hand off to our children and our grandchildren all of the delights of a healthy living system that we currently take for granted. And that's, and that is part of the issue, the taking for granted that, you know, you, you look at trees, the, the trees outside of my window, there's a particularly stunning, very old pine tree Not that's really. probably a hundred feet high. I mean, it's very tall. So it must be at least a hundred years old. And you look at something like that, you think, well, that will never go away because look at it. It's been, it's been around for a century. But life is fragile. So um, I think they've been doing some incredible work and providing an incredible service in grabbing attention and enabling conversations to start. And sometimes those conversational conversations do start in anger as people say, how could you vandalize a work of art? But again, it allows you to take the next step of, say, of saying, what are your priorities here? Yeah. So. Where... Where does the conversation need to go? What what are we looking at in order to create a sustainable future? Because I have interviewed a whole host of um, scientists, experts, academics, activists on this topic. Um, the resounding message is that we cannot continue as we are, um, that we cannot uh, continue to consume fossil fuels. Um, there is some sort of difference of opinion about how much we're going to have to contract our economy and our energy resources um, and the substitutability of renewables and the materials and minerals that we will have access to. But fundamentally, the world is going to have to change. What are we looking at in order to make those changes? What are the next steps that need to happen? Say these activists are beginning the conversation. Um, what are, would you say, the 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 next steps that need to happen in order to get us closer to maintaining a livable world? That's a great question. Interestingly, it touches on one of the other research projects that I've been working on for the past year and a half with my colleague, Victoria Ward. Uh, and I should say that even though my uh, LinkedIn page and uh, other aspects of my biography highlight my role as director of Infinite Futures, which is basically me as a um, sole consultant, the team that I am working with, that I've been working with over the past two years, Jigsaw Foresight, are the folks that actually created the uh, Law on the Emerging BioAge report 
And more importantly, the actually the video that I'm very proud of our, our creative team for having put together, that is kind of a reflection on some of the themes in that report. Jigsaw Foresight has also um, been helping something called the Deep Transitions Futures Project, which is um, being hosted by actually several universities, but it's headquartered at the University of Utrecht. And what it's attempting to do is address that very question with a particular focus at the moment of saying part, part of what is entrenched, part of the inertia in our system has to do with, quite frankly, capitalist financial structures and investment structures and profit structures. And you know that if you were reading this morning's Guardian, where once again, they were pointing out that while the world is on the edge of burning, essentially fossil fuels had the best year ever. I mean, the, yeah. you know, the fossil fuel yeah. companies had, had record billion uh, dollar yeah. profits. 10 billion. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, there's this built-in momentum towards enabling them to continue to have those profits. And they're obviously uh, going to want to protect their ability to have those kinds of profits. And they have a huge amount of clout and resources that they can apply to protecting their role in the system that is increasingly dysfunctional and, in fact, maladaptive in terms of the human race and its ability to live on Earth. So what one of the things the Deep Transitions Project is doing is saying, right, so first of all, this is the classic wicked problem where there are multiple layers, multiple components and multiple layers that are driving global warming, that are driving the climate crisis, driving biodiversity loss. So you can't solve that simply. There is no silver bullet. We will have to address all of those multiple layers and uh, multiple structures um, with something equally complex, with, with an ecosystem of changes, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And to basically replace a lot of what is dysfunctional. So the Deep Transitions Futures Project suggests, for example, that what we need to do is look for what they call niches, but are emerging changes that can be innovations, they can be new technologies, they can be new, more efficient batteries or uh, intriguing ways to easily print on film solar photovoltaic cells that you could basically use that film and wrap it around things and have an entire building be, you know, solar power wow. generating. So, you know, different technological solutions that people are coming up with, signs of hope there, but also the different business models, mental models, paradigms, ways of doing things, assumptions about like the rules of play, that we have to look for innovations in all of those areas and more specifically, look for new ways of thinking and innovations that fit together and amplify each other to amplify change. And in a way, those activists are providing one piece of that puzzle by saying it's not just that we need new innovations or you know new uh, regenerative architecture or um, sustainable energy. We also need new ways of thinking. And so we have to have new stories to tell and we have to have new images to trigger our thinking along certain lines or to help us open up the discussion space. And so those actions, just like Greta Thunberg sitting in front of her school, you know, initially every Friday, um, create little stories that act as seed kernels of new narratives, of new ways of looking at the world, of new approaches to change. So all of that is important. The fact that you do this podcast is important. We are creating an ever-expanding dialogue because one of the things that does bug me a little bit when people talk about how can we as individuals act to you know prevent climate change and they talk about turning off the lights when you leave the room well yes that's obviously a good idea and we do have to change our lifestyles we have to have different expectations about whether or not we can fly to Ibiza for the holidays you know, yeah. every other month. But seriously, this is mostly at the feet of those companies that are making the $10 billion profits. So at the higher levels of the global economic system, investment and 
financial levers have to be differently incentivized and differently evaluated. And the Deep Transitions Futures Project, for its sort of first practical project, said, right, so we're going to get together two dozen investors who are investing, um, who are, are running big investment funds like entire national pension funds or really large-scale development funds, uh, large-scale private investment funds, and basically get them to understand this perspective of needing to support multiple little, little emerging niches of change, um, innovative ways of thinking that connect together to create this ecology of transformation. We need to get them together and, and help them understand this approach and sit with them and create a, a guideline or a checklist or a manifesto, whatever you want to call it, a philosophy of investment to put us on a path to a regenerative and sustainable future and to start, and this is my way of putting it, not the projects, and to start prying some of the power out of the hands of these people that are making $10 billion from basically degrading planetary living systems. Because that, because we, we have to approach this at all levels. That may have been a longer answer than you wanted. <laughs> so sure, that's, I, I suggest answer. people go look at the Deep Transitions Futures Project. They actually, I think, have just released this week, or maybe it's going to be next week, this uh, new philosophy for investment. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, the law and the emerging bioage, we're taking, instead of looking at the financial systems, we were looking at emerging changes in the legal systems having to do with the relationship between humans and other living systems. Right. Before we jump into the law report, I just have one final question on this idea of finance and, and using finance as a tool. Um, there is a one way of, I think, looking at the problem of capitalism, extractivism and neocolonialism and the colonial history that these things are built upon. And saying, well, the solution can will never be found using the tools that created the problem. Mm -hmm. um, are we not tying ourselves into a continued sort of dependence on or feeding the power of the market by approaching it um, as if, if, oh, if we change its philosophy, then that's part of the solution. But is part of your research showing that actually things are simply not going to change unless we take those initial steps. And it's only by taking those initial steps that we could then start to perhaps deconstruct the very concept of a market in the future. So you've asked me the question and you've answered it. Oh, right. Okay. Great. That was, that was exactly <laughs> my critique. Actually, when we first started talking about this, and again, the, the people in the project, extremely um, thoughtful, critical scholars, who have spent a great deal of time looking at patterns of change and and deep transitions in history before this, before coming up with this theory of how you, of how uh, the next deep transition might occur and what we could do to encourage it. And that was exactly my question. It was sort of like, this entire problem is caused by, as you have just said, extractive capitalism. And so what we're going to do is, yeah, we can't fix cap. We can't fix capitalism. Capitalism will always mm -hmm. be extractive and it will always be, from a systems perspective, essentially an insane idea because you can't have infinite growth, which is a core idea on which capitalist mechanics are based, mm -hmm. in a finite system. That just doesn't work. Yeah. And everyone acknowledged that. And yes, exactly as you said, it was, we have to start somewhere. And, and quite frankly, we haven't yet had a sufficiently wide and inclusive and decolonizing global conversation about what a new system would look like. Mm. So we don't want to impose a new system on people that weren't involved in designing it. That would be just as bad. Yeah. But, but we're running out of time in physical terms with regard to planetary systems. So we have to Essentially, I, I think one of the ways you could look at it is capitalism is a wild animal and we need to put a choke chain on it and, and jerk it hard. Mm. And then in the meantime, figure out something else that we would rather have as a pet than capitalism. Right. The wild right. tiger. So, yeah. 
Right. It's I mean, it's it's very difficult. But but at this point, we have to we have to start, I think, making as many testing kinds of changes or test efforts at change as we can and see what works and what works fastest, while at the same time, absolutely having a thoughtful, inclusive dialogue on what would be a better way to live with the rest of the living systems on the planet, because we aren't, we aren't above those systems. We are not, those systems are not our resources. Those systems are the um, the web of life that makes life possible for each of us. So we are part of that. Uh, and it has been one of the, the sort of tragic outcomes of the cultural philosophy, especially in Judeo-Christian-based cultures, the idea of the great chain of being and that mankind, humanity, is somewhere slightly below the angels and therefore can do whatever they want with whatever is beneath them on the great change of being it is has been a essentially a very damaging assumption for yeah thousands of years now so absolutely this um sort of seeing the natural world as a profane thing and that we are destined for something sacred and just beyond so we can treat planet earth as our dumping ground um thank you religion <laughs> yeah really <laughs> <laughs> right, let's get into the, instead of alienating people, let's get into the law in the Emerging BioAge Report. Now, this is really, really exciting. Um, this idea that we can use our legal infrastructure to protect nature, uh, protect the natural world and protect the future, therefore. Um, it's something I've been particularly interested in, especially since... Um, uh, well, you know, Chile, actually, the proposed constitution, the legislation that was drafted and unfortunately rejected, which I've gone on and on and on about on this podcast, um, was just such a phenomenal piece of work that really tried to encapsulate the power that the law and regulation has, um, especially a more powerful than market-based solutions. So please do go into great detail about what it is that uh, you and your team discovered and what we should be trying to enact all over the world. Okay, so um, one thing I would point out, first of all, um, and, and I want to make this a, a public statement loud and clear. Yes, mm -hmm. I am a futures researcher. I am not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I am not a uh, legal framework policy maker. And I say that because at least one of the articles covering this report actually referred to me as Dr. Wendy Schultz, one of the lawyers who wrote the study. So no. not a lawyer. And the reason for this study was to highlight for the legal profession, because the Law Society is, um, is the professional body of the legal profession in the UK, to highlight for the legal profession what might be some critical emerging changes around this particular topic of the emerging bioage. Now, what we meant by the, the bioage it initially was this uh, evolving capability that human beings have to tinker with life at the level of viruses and DNA and cells and synthetic biology and gene engineering plants and animals, gene engineering ourselves, all the way up to tinkering with entire ecosystems and the impact of just our human activities on entire ecosystems. So the report is much broader than just rights of living systems. It, what it's trying to do is say all, all along that spectrum of our human ability to fiddle with nature, there are questions of moral, moral and ethical questions and also questions of responsibility and accountability for the impacts and consequences of what we do. All of which are more or less philosophically what the law is our institution for handling in most societies, and some of which regulations in the law already cover. So there are regulations about um, contamination, about use of different kinds of genetic ed editing capabilities. And there hasn't 
one of the points we were trying to make is that first of all, we wanted to connect up the pieces of um, that evolving, expanding system of how we are interacting with life as human beings and say to the law profession, you may be called upon to adjudicate or negotiate um, or protect different aspects of all of these activities. So let's keep an eye on how they're all changing. So the first idea was we need to start more regularly taking systemic perspectives on some of these, these big issues of change that are emerging. So here's one of them. What are all those sort of moving parts? So one part of this uh, project was the creation of a system map of different sort of sub-issues in this overall issue of um, the emerging biological age or changing relations of humanity with living systems, however you want to put it. And we actually created an initial system map, had roundtable discussions with um, various uh, people in the Law Society network to sort of say, what are we missing? And where that system map emerged was as futures researchers, we engaged in activity called scanning or horizon scanning, looking at emerging changes, both trends, so changes for which we have a fair amount of documentation, and also what are called weak signals or emerging little spots of change here and there where one person may have an idea or, um, or one community somewhere says, huh, maybe we should do something about this. So for example, in the United States, there was a little town in rural Pennsylvania that passed a sewage sludge ordinance in 2006 that recognized natural communities and ecosystems within the borough as a legal person in order so that they could, you know, enforce the borough's civil rights in protecting. So that was actually, as far as we could find, one of the first governments, albeit a very tiny you know, small town government to legally recognize nature's rights. And then, um, as you say, interestingly, there has been this, um, a number of attempts in South America. So Ecuador in 2008 um, recognized the rights of nature with an article in its constitution. So let's see, the, the I actually grab the relevant quote so I wouldn't misquote it. Nature or Pachamama, where life is reproduced and occurs, has the right to integral respect for its existence and for the maintenance and regeneration of its life cycle, structures, functions, and evolutionary processes. Uh, the Constitution was ratified by referendum in 2008. So. Wow. Um, now, of course, Political regimes change things. I probably need to go back to double check to make sure that they haven't unratified it or removed the referendum. <laughs> um, then there uh, also was, of course, the um, the Maori activity to uh, create rights for a river. Okay. I, I'll have to... Um, go back and actually find the, the sort of footnote for you that you can add to any write-up okay. you do explaining this. But but that was one of the first cases where essentially the um, indigenous peoples came together and said, we want to protect the, the biosystem and the river is sort of the key organizing principle of this particular biosystem, the spirit of the river. So we need to grant it rights so that we can legally protect it in your system. We already protected in our system. We need to trans. We need to translate our approach to protection into your approach to protection. Essentially, right. one of the interesting um, alternative views, however, on this whole issue was offered by someone who actually wrote a letter to the editor in response to the Guardian's short article that described this report that we just did on law in the bio age. And they pointed out that rights to living systems, granting rights to living systems can also sometimes be a negative for indigenous communities because people with 
an ability to cleverly play the legal system can actually play off the rights of the living system against the indigenous rights in ways that disenfranchise indigenous people. So to every positive step, we also have to think about different ways in which it can be uh, misused or be a negative. And the fact that they wrote that letter made me very happy because Mm -hmm. it did exactly what we wanted this report to do, which is start a debate. What are the upsides? Mm -hmm. What are the downsides? So that's another point that I really want to highlight because The Guardian really got that wrong with its headline. This report is not advocating for rights. We are not advocates as futures researchers. We are observers. So the point of the report was to say, look, there are a lot of really interesting changes. Some of them give humans a rather creepy amount of power over living systems. So maybe we should be regulating these. Talk to your local policymaker. Um, Some of them are very interesting uh, initiatives with regard to, uh, again, re- reshaping and recodifying and potentially regulating our relationship with living systems in a way that might be help- healthier both for the living systems and for us. And mm-hmm. the point of the report was to raise these questions, point out that these changes existed, And then at the end of almost every section where we are describing one of these themes of change, we we ask questions. We say, so what will this mean for your practice? What does this mean with regard to the responsibilities of the law profession for this very critical issue for humanity? So again, I, I was earlier saying we need to have more global and inclusive conversations about the implications of what we are doing day by day on this planet. And the report was meant to be a rather specific prompt for a specific profession to get them to start thinking critically about how their profession can add to positive change and transformative change, but in a thoughtful way and and on the basis of a fairly wide-ranging and inclusive discussion. That's really what this all at some point comes down to, and after telling you it's a wicked problem that needs a very uh, complex system to sort of transform it, I will also, at the uh, risk of sounding a little bit simplistic and possibly even banal, um, say, at one level, we all just need to be talking about all of this more. Yeah. Yeah. Because people take too much for granted about even the beauties of what is, you know, of of the nature that is outside their doors. It sounds like you are, if I may, a bit frustrated with how the report was conveyed um, by the journalists that you spoke with. No, not at all, actually. No? <laughs> um, oh, we God. had a, a fantastic uh, hour-long conversation with Harun Sadiq, who did a great job with the article. And with it, it was interesting to me that given that the report itself has three major themes, new understandings, which addresses some of these profound, sometimes surprising capabilities that uh, result from advances in biotech research and innovation, the potential for power that gives us to progress, um, to progress to develop as a society in ways that are sensitive to nature, and that on the flip side could also be weaponized or abused. The extent to which we're actually regulating any of that. Um, so how are we mitigating the potential risks of these new capabilities? Also, the second theme was second chances, which really was looking at law ethics, how we mitigate potential environmental damage, how we continue to operate within our new understanding of planetary limits, so the idea of donut economics and other mm-hmm. other new paradigms that really emphasize this idea that these are finite systems, and so we have to think of human activities as being limited in constructive ways. How we handle 
intended and unintended consequences, um, how, how we deal with transparency and accountability, how we bring in both uh, across all of these themes, how we bring in marginalized voices, um, indigenous peoples' understandings, how we bring in new understandings based on very old understandings to address some of these issues. And also the third theme was rights for non-humans. So that's something very concrete. So understandably attractive, you know, what can our, what can our uh, politicians maybe do to help this situation? How can the legal profession support that? I understand completely why that was the emphasis. It's a very intriguing, a provocative idea makes a lot of people go, why should a Bush have more rights than I have? You know, mm -hmm. that you can just see why it's a dramatic thing to focus on. Uh, Mr. Sadiq did a terrific job, I thought, summing up our conversation. The problem was that he did not write the headline. Sure. The headline so, of the article was advocacy, report advocates for. And that's the one thing that we're all sort of going, no, the report is actually raising an issue for public discussion. Okay. And, but but that's, right. that's what we ended up with, right? Public discussion. So that's good. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying. Could you just sorry, could you summarize the first section and the second section again for me? Oh, um, right. Um, but maybe just in a tagline for each in the same way that the third one is rights for non-humans. Uh, new understandings and new capabilities. Right. For living systems. Yeah. Uh, second chances to repair our relationship. Is that the second section, second chances? Second chances to repair our relationship right. and the damage we've done to living systems and rights for non-humans. Right, okay. And again, at, at the end of each of these sessions, we sections, we, we raise questions for discussion. The entire... The entire map of the issue is literally available as a system map, as are um, system maps, sort of conceptual system maps, for each of those three themes. So if you look at the report, um, there are these very easily extracted, actually. Can I share screen? Uh, yeah, you can. Thank oh, there is. Excellent. You... So, and let me see I, if I it will. To... I don't, I want a Chrome tab. No, I want a window. That would be good. I want this window. Share. So this is uh, it's black. tiny. Oh, it's black. Oh, there it is. There you go. So this is basically when we went and did our horizon scan for what are some of the interesting changes that are emerging relative to humans' ability to tinker with biology for good or for evil, a human's relationship with different parts of the living systems in which we exist. What are some of the the concepts, the the issues? What are the clusters that emerge? And so, you know, generally in terms of society, there are issues of sustainability, resilience, the humans and living systems relationships, biorelations. Uh, in terms of the environment itself, um, we were looking at bioremediation in the environment. Um, human interactions over marine ecosystems, uh, terrestrial ecosystems, biodiversity, ecosystem quality, um, the issue of wisdom, biophilosophy, and emerging uh, conversations in areas of biophilosophy that also connect into indigenous insight, indigenous wisdom, which are both feeding into new conversation about bioethics related to biorights, biopolitics, bioscience regulation, and then the different capabilities we have in terms of nanotechnology and biotechnology kind of blurring together, biomaterials, bioengineering, what that enables in terms of biodesign, bioarts, bioarchitecture. So this is sort of the general map. And then when we focused in, so this is the new understandings thematic cluster. What are future fit legal understandings? What are some jurisdictional gaps? What's happening in areas that are being well regulated or that are beginning to be regulated, I should say, like the emerging gene economy, um, biotech access, the whole idea of open source biotech um, Jeez, yeah. and the ability for people to sort of fiddle with living cells 
you know, in their backyards. Um, So I won't go into all of this, but but this was what we were seeing as an emerging cluster in itself. Then, and as you can see, this is all fairly well uh, footnoted. This is Second Chances, which is looking at contracts and treaties. So it connects in actually to uh, rights and laws protecting nature as individuals there. Rights, who owns, who owns what, financial benefits, the initiatives and um, new approaches, new models for recycling, replanting, reforesting, rewilding, regenerative everything. And taking apart old paradigms, decolonizing, degrowth, de-extinction. So uh, monitoring ecosystem adaptive limits. So this is the second cluster of what we can do to create second chances for both living within the system and repairing some of the damage that we've done and thereby maybe surviving. And then the rights for non-human issue. So this was meant to be again, an exploratory space that we'd created for the law profession and for everybody else who has an interest in this to give people some starting points and, quite frankly, maybe to write us a letter and say, wow, you know, your rights for non-human thematic cluster is missing some pieces. So that's my challenge to people who read this. Where are the gaps? We, we tried hard to look for a lot of emerging changes, a lot of emerging signals that things could be different. Couldn't capture them all in, in the space of time and the resources we, you know, we allotted to this. We know we're probably missing some really interesting stuff. Fill in the gaps. What are we missing? Could I ask, yeah. what, do you, what do you do when you have um, something that is natural, that is also like a, nature, a piece of nature that is also a natural resource, like water, for example? The fact that we need water in the way that we need oxygen to survive. How do you balance the legality of protecting enough that it um, maintains the biosphere versus recognizing that some of it will have to be a resource? I honestly don't know the answer to that, which is why we need to be having these conversations. What is interesting is... That is being played out both in real life and also there's a fantastic speculative novel, more or less exactly about that. Um, But that's being played out in real life all the time in the United States' Western bioregions with regard to the Colorado River and water rights. And so there literally Mm -hmm. are um, legal rights have been granted to different people for use of different amounts of water in the Colorado River. I think there's I think they're even inheritable. The they can Gosh. be renegotiated, but it's always a very strife-ridden renegotiation. And it's become a, a crisis of near catastrophic proportions. In the last year or so, as we have seen everywhere, the last year was startling in the amount of drought and um, collapse of riverine systems and or, or extreme diminution of riverine systems with regard to water flow. And we saw that in Italy with the Po River. There are stretches of the Mississippi now where they are having to limit the barge traffic, which is a major transportation infrastructure for the United States, especially for agricultural goods going north and south, go by barge up and down the Mississippi River. They have had to um, slow down the barge traffic because the Mississippi River has, um, has massive dry spots in it now. I mean, there, there, there is still a central channel mm-hmm. that flows, but it's normally you know the wide and vast Mississippi, and there are big parts of it that are basically mudflats. There are uh, reservoirs in the West, Lake Mead has dropped catastrophically. So the amount of water, because of drought, because of uh, a variety of um, climate change-related 
um, weather impacts actually has has meant that this question of water rights is even more contentious and critical now mm-hmm. because there are so many human communities that were built in the West based on the idea that they could tap what was thought to be, you know, an infinite supply of water from the Colorado River and do things like have the kind of suburban lawn around your house that you'd have if you were in Massachusetts. Yeah. So so that's part of the shift for the individuals of in our relationship with living systems, the understanding that it is kind of going to be not on in the future to think that you can recreate on the little chunk of land that your house sits on a um, an ecosystem that is not suitable to local conditions. You know, yeah, you yeah. can't have... Um, an Ohio grassy pastoral lawn in the middle of Las Vegas. So xeriscaping, right? Coming, understanding that you're in the desert, you get to have a desert yard. That's what you get to have. And it's, mm-hmm. it's understanding those kinds of lifestyle shifts. And I think to move away a second from the big systems of law and capitalism and everything else and come back down to people, I think, one of the things that we all struggle with is having gotten used to a certain kind of life, and I am now speaking specifically of the global north and sort of the OECD mm-hmm. nations, which is the only life experience I have, really. Mm-hmm. The understanding that we, it's not just a matter of turning the lights off when you leave the room, it's the matter of saying, I guess I'm not going to fly anymore. Now, for some of us, that's difficult. My entire family is in the United States. So I can't actually say I'm not going to fly anymore. I would never get to see them again. So there are limits. And that's what each of us has to struggle with is what is the maximum amount of change we can encompass that is still not just um, physically viable for us in our lifestyles, but but in essence, emotionally viable in terms of having created relationships in the 21st century that kind of assumed all of these um, all all of this lifestyle infrastructure that lets you travel freely, for example, and understanding that in the future, if we are going to be respectful of our planet's living systems, we are going to have to change the way we live. So one of the one of the issues of making that transition is helping people come up with ideas to do that, so that we don't lose all we don't lose every single aspect of the quality of life we have created for ourselves. But we make sure that quality of life, first of all, is far more evenly distributed around the peoples of the world, so that more people at least have the choice. Um, of of that of the conundrum that I have of do I take a slow boat <laughs> to the U.S. to visit my family? How exactly do I do that? Um, but but we, we, well, so, just to jump in here, I think it's also important to um, reframe quality of life, right? Um, so the development that we have in the global north and like the access to medicine, utterly fantastic. I for one would not want to live without it, mm-hmm. and yet mental health crises um, has us sort of by the throat and by the same token people feel very alienated have no sense of community so there is definitely something about our alienation from uh, living systems and communal systems even other human systems everybody but, but seems just, to be caught in the net yeah but of let's just take systems. that for a second yeah no but let's just take that for a second because what you've just talked about is like the platonic ideal of medicine in the west which is not actually okay. What either you or I would experience either here in the UK or in the US. And here in the UK, we wouldn't actually experience that great access to modern medicine because (laughs) 12 years of austerity and the Conservative Party have basically stripped resources from the NHS 
And yeah. quite frankly, what it means for those of us who can afford it, again, I acknowledge the extraordinary privilege I have in so many ways. That was mostly a matter of luck um, and, you know, where you were born. Um, uh, that the 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 reason that I feel comfortable in saying, yes, I can pretty much get the great access to medical care um, that is possible in the global north whenever I need it, it's because I actually pay for private health insurance even here in the UK. Right. Right? But an yep. awful lot of people here in the UK are, especially in the last year or so, are finding they are sitting forever in ambulances or sitting forever in waiting rooms. They aren't oh, having yeah, that kind true. of... True. And in the US, yeah. sure, you can have access to great medical care if you want to indebt yourself forever and possibly have to sell your house. Right. Yeah, yeah. And okay. that's not exaggeration, that... right? So, yes. So to come back to that, what that means is part of this conversation about respect for living systems... Granted, we've done a lot of damage to the external, the, the, the living systems external to us. And so we should be working on repairing that relationship and repairing that damage. But we've also done a lot of damage to ourselves as living systems. Yeah. The fact that in most places in the world, you can't get good, free medical assistance when you need it means that we're not taking care of this living system. We're not ensuring that... Uh -huh. Each individual can take care of their own living system. So mm -hmm. it's, it's part of this whole, um, you know, maladaptive cultural setting in the 21st century, a lot of which has come out of capitalism, neoliberalism. Well, I'm sounding probably way more radical than I actually am. But yes, when you've been, when you've <laughs> been struggling. Button, this show tends to have that effect on people. <laughs> I see. You're you're radicalizing us one by one. That's, that's your cutting plan. I get it now. All right. <laughs> that's how I had value. <laughs> okay. But um but but I will say that, you know, having started working on this problem, especially when you when your first exposure to global climate change and sea level rise is doing policy study for the Pacific Island nations. I mean, the, some of the Pacific Island nations, at the time we were working with them, the total national population was like 65,000, not million, 65,000 people. So you have these small communities who are sitting there on spots of land that are maybe a meter above sea level at their highest oh, yeah. and looking at the rest of the world and saying to the rest of the world, please stop. You are erasing us. You are literally, what you are doing is literally going to erase our nation from the face of the map. And very famously in the mid-80s, I can't remember exactly what year it was. So this, this is how long people have been trying to raise this issue. There was a journal called Pacific Islands Monthly, which was kind of popular among policymakers and various readers across the Pacific Basin and the Pacific Basin Nation. And there was an issue of it, and the cover was didn't have a picture. It was just black. And then on it, in yellow, in big type, it said, just say goodbye to Kiribati, Tuvalu, Tokelau, the Marshalls. The, and it just listed all the Pacific Island states that were low-lying atolls. And that was in the mid-'80s. And yeah. they were trying to get attention in, in uh, uh, global NGO and UN meetings and various you know, global planning meetings to this problem. And so this has yeah, been going yeah. on for 40 years and we've run out of runway on this I, issue. One of, as as one of my, Anthony Gutierrez is saying all this week, right? Yeah. One of my frustrations with this wicked problem is the fact that it is not portrayed as a wicked problem consistently. Um, not by academics, of course, but in the media. Um, so to me, it is astonishing that you would ever now have a media report about um, oil and gas profits or oil and gas um, exploration or oil and gas anything without equally saying, and, you know, this has led to, you know, this exploration has led to this increase in um global warming and is seeing the results of X, Y, and Z. You know, the amount of reports I saw about the floods in Pakistan that did not mention climate change once um, is so irresponsible. 
and it allows for a sort of misinformation to continue to spread and hobble people's desires or knowledge to to be able to do something about um and the necessary things that we need to do when confronting the future um it is astonishing that whenever uh, we talk about i don't know um uh, for example, I saw a thing just this morning in a really, really well-established paper that I respect highly that was talking about um, carbon capture. So saying, you know, oh, all of these oil and gas profits could have been going on carbon capture and that would sort of solve all the problems. And yet you look into carbon capture for the moment, it still emits more than it captures because it's a highly energy intensive uh, industry. And so it there is. just doesn't seem to be any consensus on like how to actually confront and consistently report on the interlinking factors which are driving this crisis. And then we wonder why nothing is happening. Yeah, exactly. So many people are looking for the silver bullet. And for a lot of yeah. policymakers, the thing that is attractive about carbon capture, which is seriously not been proven to be effective in any way that would be useful at large scale, the, yeah. it, the, the difficulty with that is is that it emerges from a perspective of clean up the mess rather than stop making the mess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, right? It's, totally. it's like, this is, well, let's, just keep, let's just keep burning all these fossil fuels and we'll just capture the carbon. The only yeah. really effective carbon capture, you know, is, is all of the green growing things. So protecting the Amazon. Yeah. But protecting the Amazon gets in the way of all the beef, the people that want to beef farm. Yeah. Um, maintaining, maintaining... Um, forests, maintaining greenery as much as we can, but that means that we have to prioritize those ecosystems getting water and not tap water mm. water resources away from them for human activity. I mean, everything is so interlinked, but people like looking for the one-shot solution, because then they can sort of tick it off and say, great, we've taken care of that, and I can keep on living exactly the way I've been living. The scary thing about what I just told you is that that is a very well-respected Oxford professor in their climate department. That was his contribution to the article. But if you just put all of this money into carbon capture, then that would have solved all of the problems. I was like, God, have you even got, you know, scientists, scientists in our only left-wing paper saying that... <laughs> Uh, and then I've been two weeks earlier, that same paper did a report on how carbon capture, like the majority of carbon capture uh, projects right now are failing. And it's like, oh, surely you don't have that short term of memory. Come on. Well, no. OK, so I'm going to go back to to my comment about the difference between the conversation I had with um, Harun Sadiq, who does great work and whoever it was at the paper that wrote the headline. So the one thing that I will say in defense of journalists is that what they write and submit is not always exactly what gets published for reasons of newspapers having to keep within word counts and various other things. So well, it's, it is a, to it's jump in, but uh, typically journal, journalists get final say over the copy that goes out. So especially you get, you get to see your edits and agree or disagree. Do you? Apart from That's, the headline. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, but yeah, the one thing that I will agree with is that, mm. generally speaking, the media will, not as consistently as I would like, mention related causes. So as you say, yes, all the reporting on Pakistan and the flooding there, some few instances of that did refer to climate crisis-related changes in monsoon patterns, but not all of it. Um, just as, you know, various journalists did not say after showing the video of the new prime minister talking about the various problems that need to be addressed that, of course, are caused by, and those of us at home silently said, Brexit, and, and he just started after the end when went, you know, um, COVID and the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, and, and, and. Mm. But how many people, how many people reporting on that speech then said, and Brexit? You know, you need to mm. own that, and you're not. So, mm. so yes, the, the whole issue of 
the um, media space and the journalistic space in which information is reported on, commented on, brought into the public dialogue is problematic. It has gotten hugely more problematic with social media, which on the one hand can actually be an interesting open forum to trade ideas and to trade information, but on the other hand is rife with trolls and, and meanness, quite frankly. And now, of course, that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, mm-hmm. um, we're we're going to take several large steps backwards, I suspect, with yeah. regard to yeah. uh, inappropriate behavior and misinformation. Yeah. In fact, the whole issue of creating uh, creating the internet, creating the web, allowing people to to connect globally via email, then global and then via websites, be their own basically pundits by creating blogs, um, the emergence of social media, the emergence of Twitter, all of which is a fantastic lesson in what happens when you let exciting technologies that everyone goes, that's kind of cool, so let's do it, as, as opposed to that's kind of cool. Have we thought through the upsides and downsides of this and the potential cascades of impacts that will come from it? That was not done. People just implemented. And that's part of the reason now that, you know, as as the digital technologies are maturing and we're seeing all of the mistakes we made in not having critical conversations about what their impacts might be. Yeah. We are in the middle of this evolving new age beyond the digital age to the biological age, the age of, of amazing capabilities with regard to life. Let's not make that mistake that we made with digital technology all over again. Instead, let's take a moment and say, what could be some of the impacts of these things mm-hmm. that we're now capable of doing? And again, that was exactly the impetus for the report. Excellent. Let's learn from our mistakes. <laughs> that should be the title of this episode, Wendy. Uh, let's <laughs> learn from our mistakes. Here's how you can. <laughs> this has been such a fascinating discussion. Thank well, you so much. Start, at least. Uh, yeah. Thank you for inviting My- me. Oh, fun. my pleasure. Um, my final question for you, of course, is who would you like to platform? Rachel Armstrong, who is doing amazing work on this edge of humans' relationship with living systems and increased respect for and increased potential for how we could live more lightly and more respectfully within these living systems in a way that is also um, enhances our own lives, Mm. which makes it sound very philosophical. She is very philosophical, but she's also really interested in creating architecture that actually is embedded with living systems and that that works with living systems in interesting ways. So both in, in terms of both actually creating new infrastructure and also in some of the philosophical and even spiritual aspects of how we relate to living systems. Yeah. She's fascinating. Call her up. Oh, I will. Thank you so much. Wendy, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. You have a good afternoon and a fantastic weekend. Thank you. You too. If you want to learn more about Wendy's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com. I've put links to everything in the description box below. I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.